Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Why didn't the crab want to share his food with the ray? Because he was shellfish. Thank you to Alex for that joke. For today's episode, I am speaking with award-winning author, cinematographer, photographer, and conservationist Jim Abernathy. Originally, when I had contacted Jim, he wanted to record this podcast as a video, and we actually met up in person at his scuba adventure shop to record. Due to several technology glitches, all we have is this audio recording, but maybe we'll try to film something in person in the future. For decades, Jim lived aboard his boat, leading expeditions to engage with the world's largest predatory sharks, cage-free. His work has been featured on IMAX, National Geographic, BBC Wildlife, Animal Planet, the Discovery Channel, and more. In today's episode, Jim shares how a dinosaur nest changed the trajectory of his life, how he makes friends with sharks, and how his book helped to shape ocean policy. Jim also shares some behind-the-scenes stories from film crews who came aboard his boat and advice that anyone, from conservationist to business person, can live by. Please enjoy. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. I I hope I can be entertaining and keep your guests listening. (laughs) (laughs) So Jim, I want to start off with, you had a pivotal experience in your childhood finding a dino nest, and that kind of shaped the trajectory of your life. Could you explain the story behind your dino nest? I would absolutely love to. The actual uh, story of why I became, you know, basically an animal nut or pursued nature for uh, my living uh, started at a very early age. I grew up just a couple houses away from the beautiful Palm Beach shores. And as a youngster, I remember still to this day, as if it was yesterday, sitting in the sand and seeing a baby turtle crawl out of the sand and then piles more. And they all ran down to the beach and I was just enamored. I just couldn't believe how beautiful our nature world was, or the the sea turtles. So I forced my parents into reading me all kinds of turtle books until I could read myself. And I pursued learning more and more about turtles. And about four or five years later, around the age of nine or ten, knowing that that mom sea turtles come up on the beach to lay a nest, um, I was watching them late at night, uh, mostly alone. And it was during that time that I found an enormous nest about the same size as a small car and I looked at this nest at, at you know early age of nine or ten and I, I thought to myself what could it be because it was way bigger than the rest of the turtles and I came to the obvious conclusion it was a dinosaur. 
So I went back to speak to my brilliant parents. My mom's an archaeologist, or was an archaeologist, and my father is an aerospace engineer, <clears throat> and explained to them that I'd found a dinosaur nest, at which time they uh, replied that, you know, this is, they're extinct, and what extinction means, and all of this, and I dragged them by the hand all the way down there and tell me, well, what is this? What is this thing? And they said that they didn't know. But years later, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Eleanor Fletcher, who would later be known in this area as the Turtle Lady of Juno Beach. And she listened to my story about the dinosaur and actually told me that I had found the last living warm-blooded reptile, the last relative of the dinosaur, the leatherback turtle, which was a great day when you can tell your parents that they're wrong. Um, and uh, I'll never forget that. <laughs> but I didn't realize how much it was going to affect my life. You see, I made <clears throat> a point of, of, of pursuing leatherback turtles. I wanted to see them. I didn't realize it was going to take me 15 years before I would see the first one. And I've pursued turtles and wildlife mostly because of my pursuit of the leatherback turtle. And I'm so fortunate for that because it has provided me with a life of filled with nature, of unbelievable um, events with all different types of wildlife, mostly aquatic. So that's basically uh, how it all started out. I love it. It's such a fun story. Leatherbacks truly are an amazing <clears throat> creature to see. I mean, up, up on the beach, they're about the size of an ATV, 1,000 pounds, seven, up to seven feet long. I mean, they're an enormous animal, and they truly look like the last remaining dinosaur that they are. So that's a great story to share. Thank you. Thank you. So what inspired you? I mean, your, your entire office is adorned with amazing photographs, and you, know, you have beautiful underwater footage. What inspired you to pick up the camera and actually start documenting some of these things that you're seeing? Well, early on, my parents wanted me to capture, kill fish and lobsters and things because they eat that stuff. Uh, but very quickly, I got tired of the death because, you know, f fish are my friends. And I didn't see the killing, and that's when I picked up a camera at, I think, like 14. And I never looked back. It was by far the best, one of the best things, other than taking up scuba, I would say that this is by far one of the best things I've done. Uh, because it enabled me to pursue what I would later find out to be my life's purpose, which my life's purpose is to show the true nature of sharks as well as other wildlife, but mostly sharks with the hopes that I might be able to affect their change to stop the needless slaughter of so many of our creatures, especially sharks. I didn't realize as I pursued a career going, going through college and all of that, um, how I would need so many skill sets in order to follow my dream uh, but that quickly became very apparent yeah so actually you bring up college and that's something i wanted to chat with you about you got a business degree which is fascinating because you realize at such a young age that you wanted to be this wildlife conservationist and that you wanted to be a voice for wildlife and instead of pursuing a degree in biology you decided to 
get a business degree. So what what made that decision for you, and then where did that decision lead? Well, um, actually, I pursued uh, what I thought I wanted to be, which was a, a, a vet, an animal caretaker, and I pursued that uh, early on, uh, but there was this one class I just couldn't seem to pass, which was organic chemistry, um, and being a, a speed reader, um, I got through most of my classes studying for them just before the test because I, I didn't really see the need like I see now of learning as much as you possibly can while you've got somebody dedicated to teaching you. Um, and gosh, I wish I could go back and relive those times because um, if I would have paid more attention in school, my life would have been so much easier. The, the one thing I, I can clearly say in looking back at my education is that I should have paid a lot more attention because everything that I've done the rest of my life has fallen back on the education or the lack of education that I had. Um, and following my, my life streams of, of protecting wildlife as a conservationist. So um, that education um, I thought was over when I got my college degree. Uh, I switched from uh, being a vet in, in because I failed out on, on uh, organic chemistry and thought that I think I need to get a business management degree quite simply because um, I have ver I'm very opinionated in what I believe in and I don't think that I would be a good employee working for anyone else. I needed to follow my own path, my, my chosen path to basically follow my dreams. I basically wanted to swim with wildlife or be with wildlife every single day. Um, and fortunately, I've chosen that path and been able to do that for decades now. And I should say here that most marine biologists, I mean, most people that listen to this and watching this at home, aspire to work with wildlife. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to become a marine biologist, and I did get to work in the field quite a bit. But Jim takes the cake. I mean, he literally lived on boats most for most of his life, really, just swimming with wildlife, diving, and documenting everything that he sees. And it's really incredible. But, and you've created a amazing dive company out of this but you didn't know that starting a dive company was going to be such like an amazing career when you started out and you actually have a really great story from your dad would you share that um i would absolutely love to share that you see my father is also very opinionated and um when I finished my college degree and came back and, and told him, and he, and he said, so, you've got a business management degree. What are you planning on doing? And I said, well, I'm going to enter the, the diving industry. Uh, I'm going to get my instructor's license and my captain's license and, and uh, spend as much time with wildlife uh, that I can. And he looked into it the diving industry in particular, and a couple days later, he said, listen, I, I looked into your industry, and I think you're making a big mistake. Uh, did you realize how small the industry is? And I, I said, no, how small is it? He said, well, do you know anyone with a ping pong table? And I said, no. And he said, well, do you realize that if you added up all the money that was spent in the United States on the di in the diving industry, that it was less money 
than was spent on just ping-pong ball purchases alone in the United States. And that, that really hit me. It's a very, it was a very small industry in those days. And then he gave me his words of wisdom. You work where you have to, so you can play where you want to. And I didn't really take that in. But years later, when I became one of Florida's largest dive boat operators, with, uh, I ran for four years with five boats and one year with six boats, I, I told him that he was close. He didn't even remember the words of wisdom, and I reiterated it for him. And, you know, you work where you have to so you can play where you want to, and said that you were close because I've made a living at playing really hard right where I want to. And that's been pretty much my, my whole life. Um, I've basically been able to follow my dreams because other people want to do very similar things. And um, at first, <clears throat> you know, I was taught that, that uh, basically business is about making enough money to take care of your financial obligations and and uh, while most people that it think that that is the key to success I would disagree I think the key to success now um, is happiness and I think part of that is being able to pay for your pay your your bills and not have financial stress but I think it's really important especially for me that I have a job that I love so I don't mind working endless hours still here you know over four decades later I wake up like a charged battery every day and can't wait to go uh, see wildlife you have you've created this dive operation in an amazing uh, organization and you have become a voice for sharks mostly um, but all wildlife really and you felt to compelled to do more and you actually wrote a book Called Sharks Up Close, which is this one all right here. the way over, mm-hmm. um, and it's a really wonderful book. It actually covers a lot of marine biology in it, as well as some conservation aspects. I mean, you go over the anatomy of a shark, you go over where they live, and also that they are not set out to attack people. They're actually not really set out to interact with people very often. Um, so most interactions with them are mistakes. So could you kind of share the story behind why you decided to publish a book and then you also created your own publishing company around it. Could you share the story and kind of the thought process behind doing both of those things? Uh, I'd love to. Um, Well, once I got my business stable and I no longer needed to work a worry about bookings because we were booked like three years out for well over a decade and um, I was able to focus on what was really important and that clearly is conservation as a shark conservationist you know once I uh, discovered through research that um, no other animal on the face of our planet is being wiped out in such significant numbers as sharks are by humans and that 90 percent of all the sharks are already gone and I realized that some of the sharks I had spent an enormous amount of time in the winter months here we don't see it all in Palm Beach County. Um, I knew that my calling, my purpose in life, was to be the voice for sharks. Uh, and f- 
fortunately, because my business was successful, I was able to spend the enormous amount of time it takes in order to start down this road of conservation. And my plan, kind of a shotgun approach, was I'm going to write an, uh, books. I didn't realize I'd had to publish them as well, <laughs> but um, I'm also going to uh, teach myself photography and cinematography so that I can make films and project animals uh, with their true nature because I believe like Jacques Cousteau said we only protect what we love and if I could show the sentient side the affectionate side of sharks that more people would love them and help in this fight to save them because no matter where you are on the planet over 50% of the oxygen comes from our oceans, over 70% of the protein comes directly or indirectly from our oceans. We all need sharks. We all need to uh, do everything we possibly can to maintain the uh, population of the species that keeps our oceans healthy and in balance. Um, so it's up to all of us to do everything we can. So I've taken on that path. Now, if I would have known that I was going to write, uh, take pictures, and publish books, boy, I sure would have spent a lot more time in English. Um, and all I can say is thank God for uh, dictation uh, so that you don't have to type as well as um, uh, spell check because uh, I'm not good at either of those but technology has aided me and I've been able to uh, publish three award-winning books all all of them have won three awards and the turtle book in the middle has actually won four um, and they are truly conservation books in fact my uh, shark book right here the ultimate uh, thing for me was not the thousands of books that I've spent that I've that I've sold but it was actually uh, the simple fact that my book was used uh, by, as an educational tool for every state representative and senator, that's 840 of them, all received my shark book as a educational shark conservation uh, book and it was actually read on the Senate floor in order to pass California's, uh, U, uh, California's shark fin trade ban. So that was the ultimate um, position for my books. The reason I publish them myself is because um, if you let somebody else publish it, you no longer own it. And um, I have a, a wonderful partner on my books, Jen Nolan, um, who did the, you know all the writing for the, the next two, uh, a planet conservation book for kids called The Secret of Pig Island, where the star Plato speaks in rhyme and also in English. Um, as well as a beautiful uh, turtle book, which I believe is actually our, our best book. So um, we publish them and have to endure all the high costs of, of keeping them in stock and all that other stuff. But it's a learning process, like everything that you do. And so this was just one of the ways that I was going to alter the course of our planet into a sustainable direction, especially for sharks. Um, and of course the other ones are uh, movies, films, and social networks. I'm going to add podcasts to that. Oh, podcasts and <laughs> blogs. Yes, let's absolutely add that. That's why right. I started the podcast. Education is key in, in getting people involved and part of the stories. And absolutely. I'm in complete agreement. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's such an incredible honor and uh, 
I mean, part of your resume to have your book read on the Senate floor and actually have it pass legislation. That's pretty awesome. So you mentioned earlier that some of the, some of the species that you had seen growing up, some of the species of sharks that you had seen growing up swimming off the coast of Palm Beach, you don't see anymore. What, which which of those sharks is kind of the most distinctive for you that you don't see anymore? Well, this is really a sad, dark area. Um, but when I first started diving in Palm Beach County in the winter months, which is, uh, wow, that's 50 years ago. In the winter months, I used to see scalloped hammerheads from the surface all the way to the bottom, roughly every 15 or 20 feet. And every shipwreck in Palm Beach County was covered with sand tigers. And I don't see those anymore. I've seen an, an individual scalloped hammerhead uh, in the last two decades. I haven't seen a sand tiger in 35, maybe 40 years. And that's because they were wiped out. In those days, the only good shark, according to most people, was a dead shark. And unfortunately, one of the dive shops had three boats by the name of Shark Killer 1, Shark Killer 2, and Shark Killer 3. And I have one picture with 27 dead sand tigers. We basically killed them all. And now these these beautiful pictures that you see with massive numbers of, of uh, scalloped hammerheads are only in islands way off the coast. And even those numbers are being diminished at a rapid, rapid rate. So it's uh, that was kind of like the, the, the driving force. In fact, um, to show you how bad it is, this uh, picture, I don't know if you can see it, where is it here? Over there, right above your head is, um, a, a, is a, a shark known as the um, oceanic white tip shark. Uh, Cousteau's uh, scientists proclaimed that this was the most prolific animal on the planet, over 100 pounds in weight, roughly a little bit over 50 years ago. Today there isn't one ocean in the world that has even 1% of that population. We have devastated the shark populations worldwide as well as wildlife. I think we've, we've wiped out over 60% of all wild animals on the planet um, in the last 50 years, which to me is, is a sure sign that we need a lot of people that are hopefully watching this podcast uh, to become uh, marine biologists, doing the number crunching and, and giving uh, examples, writing papers of exactly what we need to do in order to protect our planet's wildlife for the future. Absolutely. And that's what you do also with your scuba adventures. You take people out and you have them interact, doing these amazing interactions with sharks. And for those of you who don't follow Jim on Instagram, I highly recommend it. All his photos are amazing, and you truly get up close and personal. I mean, there's photos of you petting sharks. And you've brought out film crews. <clears throat> so you've had Nat Geo and uh, ABC and all sorts of fun film crews on the boat with you, but not all of them have been so ready to jump in the water with sharks. Could you share a story about a film crew that came out, was excited about sharing, seeing sharks, and then kind of was not when they actually got, when it came time to jump in the water? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, I'm sure you're talking about uh, the film crew Sunday Night from Australia, which is uh, very similar to United States 60 Minutes. 
they had booked the charter boat for um, a whole week in order to film the shark girl, uh, Maddie Stewart, uh, world famous for her conservation of shark efforts and, and well-deserved, a tremendous shark conservationist. But they came out to get her story and it was uh, quite strange when I met with them at their hotel before we left, they explained to me that all they're really interested in, in doing is just one dive uh, because they're scared to death of sharks and that that the rest of the footage that I would be the only underwater cameraman and they'd be able to put it together that which that's crazy nobody does that so they came out on the boat and they uh, the producer just one I'm sorry the host got in the water first and and um, she did her one dive and she came out and she was completely blown away as is everybody that visits Tiger Beach um, and um, she came up and and uh, we did another dive a couple hours later and much to my surprise two of them are getting ready um, the producer and the host and they said we're just going to do this one dive we're only going to be down for maybe 10 minutes and uh, well an hour and a half later they're still down there and obviously they're enjoying this but they still had this thought in the back of their mind that sharks are dangerous which is I don't understand how that happened maybe because cor the corporate headquarters had given them specific directions just be in minimum amount of time well a week goes by and they never missed a dive somebody was in the water I hope I didn't get them in trouble for that but uh, <laughs> um, somebody was in the water uh, part of their team on every single dive and which was really great because in my eyes it doesn't take longer than five minutes on a shark dive to actually realize that sharks aren't dangerous and then you see their true nature and as the late Rob Stewart says that's when you realize at five minutes that everything you've been told about sharks being mindless man-eating monsters is completely wrong. In fact, if you look at what most people would refer to as a shark attack, it's really a shark mistake. And the proof is in what actually happens. You see, no predator on the planet attacks an animal that doesn't want to consume it. The simple fact that sharks bite and then release uh, shows you that it was a mistake. No large predator needlessly attacks like this without consuming uh, the creature they've attacked. They don't want to risk their life. And so shark attacks are actually mislabeled. They should be called shark mistakes. Absolutely. I think the scientific term is shark interactions, trying to take away the stigma from the attack. But I do like shark mistakes as well. It's, it still highlights that they're not intentionally going after humans. So you touched on Tiger Beach a little bit. Could you explain that what Tiger Beach is, where it is, and who Emma is? If well, anybody follows That's a big you, question. <laughs> but uh, uh, let me do my best. Um, first of all, in my pursuit to uh, very early on as a conservationist, I decided that my method uh, was to uh, get the, the top 10 considered to be most dangerous sharks and swim with them every day without a cage. In fact, I am the pioneer that started cageless large predatory shark interactions, which in the early days as the Pathfinder, I received a gauntlet of arrows 
mostly from other shark operations that labeled me as dangerous. In fact, I think I'm labeled controversial, and that's because I don't use cages. And I'm so happy to report that here it is 24 years later after moving off of land into the ocean 25 days a month. All those people that, that gave me a hard time and labeled me stupid and uh, they're all doing exactly what I'm doing, or at least they're trying to, but I still think I'm way ahead of them because of the, what I've discovered, the affectionate side of, of sharks, which leads me right into uh, Emma. But before I actually get to her, I'd, uh, let me just explain how I discovered this. You see, living at sea um, 25 days a month, year-round, I basically moved on to a liveaboard shark expedition vessel after I purchased it. And, and staying out there, you quickly realize that um, nature is cruel. You know, we are protected. We break a leg, we go inside our house and recover. In nature, if you have a mistake like that, nature will take you out. The, the only the strongest, uh, smartest survive. And very early on, I met a one-eyed shark that I didn't think would live very long because of its physical challenge. And um, of course, rooting for the underdog, I paid attention to this one. And three or four years after I first met this shark that I named Captain Ron after a very funny movie <laughs> where the main actor, oh, you know the movie. I love Captain Ron. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, and after I named this shark Captain Ron after this very funny movie where the main character's missing its left eye and, and Captain Ron, the lemon shark, nine-foot lemon shark, is missing its left eye. It swam into the area with this huge hook hanging through the top jaw. It went all the way through its head, and it was moving in the current, cutting a bigger hole in its jaw, and I thought, oh, my God, this poor shark, my species, probably removed its eye, and now it cut a hole in its head with this hook. And I got this crazy idea. I wonder if I can make friends with the shark, the same way I would a strange dog, giving affection, enough to bond with it so that I could pull the, sh the shark in close to my head and get the hook out while it was busy getting affection. And I tried this crazy idea, and within two hours I had done exactly that and removed the hook. And still to this day, Captain Ron is, is swimming around with me. Well, for me, that was a game changer moment. I looked around at all the sharks at Tiger Beach. You know, there's 100 to 200 swimming around, and over 50% had hooks. And I became my new life's mission. I'm going to remove all those hooks. And I'm very proud to say that what is this? Uh, that was 1998. I moved off the case, 2000 off the coast. 2002, I discovered the affectionate side of sharks and. Right now, I think the last time I was there, there's two sharks that had hooks, um, and I've effectively removed hundreds of hooks from over eight species. Um, and that is best exemplified by um, a very large tiger shark by the name of Emma, who is very famous. She's <laughs> in 13 different uh, documentaries that I've put her in, probably a few more that I wasn't involved in. Um, and the part of the reason for that is because she's huge. She's also very, very friendly. To me, when I look at this 15-foot tiger shark, I see um, like a, a large, gentle dog that just wants to play. 
Um, like dogs, um, they play with their mouth, which can be life-threatening if you don't know how to play with a, a tiger shark. But we teach um, proper interactions on every trip, uh, so it's not a big deal. Um, well, it might be a big deal until you try it, but, but uh, you get what I'm trying to say. Now, to date, um, Emma's uh, lived through eight pregnancies um, in roughly 20 years. She's also had four hooks removed by me um, using affection, and the number of different um, life-changing things that she's done that just completely change your perception of sharks is uh, innumerable you can't you can't even add up all the different things that she's done and uh, that was really really uh, a game changer in fact one of the films um, that I worked on uh, highlighted Emma which is called this is your ocean sharks um, where the three co-stars are Dr. Guy Harvey, marine biologist, Wyland, the ocean artist, and myself. Um, and the star of the show is Emma. And uh, in that uh, show, you can clearly see her personality, um, her affectionate side, and uh, it really is the type of nature documentary that we need these days to show what they're really like instead of these shows like the 10 most dangerous and all this other stuff. So um, I'm really, really glad to have Emma underneath the boat roughly 10 months of the year for the last two decades and uh, everybody on the boat um, really enjoys uh, the interactions with her because she's um, amazing to be with. <laughs> it's perfect. You have a supermodel shark in clear Bahamian waters. I mean, it's, it's perfect for cinematography, right? It's absolutely <laughs> amazing, right? So, I mean, you've created so many different films and different photography, different photography, different uh, shots. What is there one that sticks out in your mind, or maybe a couple different? scenarios that stick out in your mind of like that was one of the highlights of my career this is why I keep doing what I'm doing well um, with my main drive being conservation the there's one film that's clearly better than all the rest and fortunately it's available on Netflix it was the uh, idea of a brilliant producer Abraham Joff an Australian man that pitched to Canon cameras that he wanted to find the top photographers in the world that are on a life's mission to do something good for the planet. Um, and one of the people he chose was my best friend, Eric Chang. Um, Eric's, Eric is on a mission to show that the world's most dangerous isn't dangerous at all in aquatic life. And he chose killer whales the green anaconda, the world's largest snake, as well as sharks to get in the water with all three. And that's, um, fortunately, the shark section is the section that I'm in with Eric. And uh, it was actually beautiful. Eric's goal was to change fear into love. And Abraham's brilliant abilities to tell stories and, and show things in a way that there's no doubt what's actually happening here, uh, reach that goal. And uh, I believe it's one of the most watched nature documentaries on Netflix now. 
um, and I get people contacting me about it every single week, even though it was done three or four years ago. So that is clearly the best uh, film to see. Did you actually see it? Yes, I've seen, my husband and I both watched, and it was incredible, and, and your segment in it, it was amazing. You definitely get to feel, you get to feel virtually, obviously digitally, what it's like to be underwater with the sharks, and you definitely get the vibe of just, they really are peaceful creatures, and they're not there to be malicious or menacing or in any way, so definitely highly recommend the cinematography is wonderful, I mean, in the whole series, but especially with Tiger Beach, it's amazing. Yeah, so if you have the opportunity uh, to see that, it's on Netflix, it's called Tales by Light, Tales which is a whole docu-series, um, which means stories by photography, Tales by Light, and each one is named with a different ending. Uh, the one that I'm in is Misunderstood Predators, so very happy to be in that one. One of my very favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this can be an interaction with a specific animal, in your case, maybe a shark, or um, an interaction with some of the people that you've worked with in the water, and just kind of maybe things that happened that went wonky, or things that everything went right, and that was just such an amazing day. Uh, there's one story that comes to mind that um, clearly was the most impactful uh, because it had the opportunity to really change the perception of sharks for me. And that was um, with ABC News Worldwide. Um, ABC News producer sent Matt Gutman um, on board, I'm sure, to get um, crazy uh, large predatory shark operator thinks that sharks are affectionate story pretty much labeling me as crazy. Um, and I told Matt before he got on the boat that I would let him on the boat for two days if and only if he told my story, if I can prove something that the world will not believe true. And he said, of course, well, what's that? And I said that sharks prefer affection to fish. And he said, okay, you've got two days to prove that to me. I couldn't have scripted what happened, and you know I can't talk to sharks, but boy did they come to my rescue. I knew that I could convince uh, Matt in two days because Emma was there. And all I planned on doing originally, which I did do, was to go on the regular shark dive, and for those of you that haven't been on a shark dive, there is uh, fish in the water to attract the sharks to us, um, although we're just using it to attract them to us. Um, and basically, uh, what I planned to do, and I did, was to walk across the bottom with Matt Gutman and his two cameramen over uh, 40 feet away so that he could see that some of the sharks would clearly stay with me just to get affection. However, it didn't quite go as I had planned, and parts of it were a little scary. You see, I'm one of the cameramen, and I'm holding this big camera in my left hand, and every time Emma came in close, I'd pull the camera back so I could film my hand rubbing the head of this 15-foot tiger shark, although I don't look at her like a dangerous animal, because she's not. She's just like a big puppy dog uh, that just wants to play. So um, I've got the camera here, and I'm, I'm rubbing 
um, Emma's head like this, and uh, um, I'm wearing a full face mask, which doesn't give you a lot of view down below, but I feel something hit me in the chest, and it's got to be a shark, and I was, at first, I was a little tense, like, why would they do that? Mm -hmm. They don't normally run into me, uh, but, but I felt it again and again, and I, while I'm rubbing Emma's head, I looked down to see what it was, and it was another one of my shark friends. Um, it was a nurse shark that I had taken upon dedicating some time so that I could um, speak properly about the 11th most dangerous shark in the world, which according to the shark attack files was the nurse shark. Anybody that's been in the water knows that they're not dangerous. But this is, according to them, or it was, the 11th most dangerous shark in the world based on unprovoked shark attacks. Clearly this is wrong if you know anything about sharks. So when when this little nurse shark uh, showed up, um, I paid a lot of attention to her and I loved her really hard, just smothered her with affection. And as she grew bigger and bigger and bigger, um, I also labeled her an appropriate name for the 11th most dangerous shark, Shredder. And, and here I am, Shredder's like four or five feet long now, Emma's 15 feet, I'm rubbing Emma and she's, she's wa she wants attention, she wants affection, she keeps hitting me in the chest. So I, I was rubbing Emma's head because she's a lot bigger and Shredder got upset and she went out and headbutted Emma to push her out of the way. And then as she comes back to me, I went down on one knee so she could rest because they can stop swimming. And I'm rubbing her head. Emma just turns around and comes right back over. And of course, I, I went back to Emma. Shredder got pissed off and, and this time ran into Emma's gills, which is very painful. And Emma takes off again. And the whole time, Matt Gutman is saying, live, we could talk underwater because of the ocean technology systems full-face underwater communication mask. Boy, that's a mouthful. But uh, um, uh, we, can, we can talk, and it's being recorded, and Matt says, Jim, oh my God, what am I watching? I said, you're watching two sharks compete for my affection. And ABC News actually gave me a, a nine-minute segment that day and uh, labeled me the shark whisperer, <laughs> and uh, it was amazing, and you know, I couldn't have scripted that. But sharks are affectionate creatures. They've just never had it before. And uh, today, I'm very, very proud. Uh, on each and every trip, I teach my guests how to make friends with a wild shark using affection, not fish. Uh, because feeding sharks is a whole other controversy. I don't know if we have time for that or not, but regardless, um, uh, you can't get the affectionate side of sharks while they're eating. So I don't. I choose not to feed so that I can show people their true nature, what they're really like, uh, rather than putting them in survivor mode where they have to beat all the other sharks to the fish in order to survive. So. Um, uh, so if you're interested in seeing any of that stuff, I'd highly suggest that you go to my Instagram page um, where I put stuff like that out there because it's, it goes viral almost every time I put something up about the affectionate side of sharks. And if you're a scuba diver, certainly uh, come out and enjoy um, something that, you know, that's so ironic if you think about this. I mean, think about this for a second. Of all the animals on the planet, which animal that's an apex predator can you make friends with? 
There aren't any. Yet here, the one that's feared the most, predatory sharks, is the one that I teach on a daily basis successfully so that the shark actually swims around and finds their new human friend again in order to get more affection. This can happen in a single day. It's, it's quite an amazing thing to see. You actually go elsewhere, not just over to the Bahamas and Tiger Beach. You go, you do whale shark tours over in the Gulf of Mexico, and um, just incredible, incredible work. So I appreciate all of that. Before we wrap up today, do you have a conservation ask for the audience? It's something that I like to end each episode on, something that the listeners can go forth and do, whether it's uh, spread knowledge or be able to incorporate into their daily lives or an activity that they can do, just a simple conservation ask. Well, I'm going to carry that a little bit farther forward rather than just giving you one thing. I'd, I'd very much like uh, help with my nonprofit wildlife conservation yes. campaigns, Wildlife Voice, and you can get directly to those to that campaign page by going to the link in my bio on my Instagram page. I update that regularly. Uh, with all different types of campaigns of all different types of wildlife, although, you know, the the sharks are definitely close to my heart, and I'm working on those ones the most. But in this day and age, when we've wiped out, you know, over 60% of all the wildlife on our planet, I think it's imperative that we all do what we can if we value wildlife and want them in our future. So um, I would urge everyone to go to that link in my Instagram bio or search Wildlife Voice. It's at wildlifevoice.org and go to the campaigns page because animals need a voice. They need a lot of help and there's lots you can do there. Perfect. And I'll put a link to Wildlife Voice, Jim's Instagram, and everything else we chatted about today in the show notes for any listeners that want just a clickable link to go to. Want to chat more about Wildlife Voice? We might just have to have you on the podcast again chat about it. <laughs> well, I would be honored. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you for being here. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.